quick note to new Health Hackers viewers and listeners before we begin. Anything you hear or see on Health Hackers episodes should not be considered personal or medical advice. You know the score, always talk to your health provider about your concerns. Welcome to Health Hackers episode 62, my first special guest interview since I had my baby and I'm thrilled to be able to introduce Minal Lele, author of the soon to be released book, The Baby and the Biome, How the Tiny World Inside Your Child Holds the Secret to Their Health. Minal is a mother of two, a medical researcher and founder, CEO of Little Mixins, a company that says its mission is to make early introduction easy so we can put an end to food allergies. We're going to talk about the book in a moment, uh, but first, Minal, I want to chat to you about Little Mixins and the early allergen introduction process. For those of you watching and listening who don't already know, I'm currently reviewing my experience with the Little Mixins Daily Mix product, which is a box of mini packets of allergenic foods in an infant safe powder form to feed to babies who are at least four months old with the goal of helping train their immune systems to tolerate these allergens and therefore hopefully prevent an allergy from developing. And some of you may know, I have an allergy to certain nuts and I've been feeding these sachets to my baby girl in the hope it will help prevent her from developing a food allergy like mine. There'll be a link to my little mixins review in the summary text that goes with this video. But Minal, the advice on your little mixins website is that I keep feeding these powders to my baby girl mixed with her solids until she is one. Why one? What is special about the age of one? Really, um, actually, most food allergies, the reason we say one, most food allergies tend to develop between the ages of six months and 10 months old. So when doctors say start, you know, after four months old, you're giving a little bias on the early side and a little bias on the later side. In truth, you really actually want to keep eating the food well after one, but hopefully by that point, the child can eat food, right? We don't really want them eating like, you know, artificial, not artificial, but why change the form factor? Because if by age one, the child should be able to eat more nut butters and eat whole eggs and things like that. I know, of course, some of the nuts you still don't want to do, obviously, whole peanuts and whole walnuts and things like that. But, um, you know, they can eat a lot of the other form factors. And so kind of using special products is less necessary. So I know you founded Little Mixins after your firstborn son, Leo, developed 10 food allergies and you describe the early allergen introduction process, which is what we call this, um, as training wheels for your baby's stomach. Um, tell us a bit about that and how can you be sure that it does work to prevent a baby from developing food allergies? Well, so I have one slight correction there is my son, when he was young, he developed eight food allergies. The, the 10 actually comes from Unfortunately, when we tried um, oral immunotherapy to treat his allergies and oral immunotherapy, it works for some people. And in some people, it makes their immune system so angry that in his case, it actually ended up making him develop two new food allergies. So that's we can talk about that whole disaster at a different time. But, um, you know, so so um, I'm sorry, I actually even forgot your question because I was uh, thinking about <laughs> how we got to actually 10. Well, I know that you describe the early allergen introduction process as training wheels for your baby's stomach. Right. So tell us a bit about what you mean by that and how can you right. be sure that it does work to prevent a baby from developing food allergies? Honestly, the only way you ever know prevention works, you know, it's kind of a counterfactual. Like you can't really 
prove the negative, you know, you can't prove that it worked. Um, but what you can see is that you can continue eating the food and you're not reacting to it, right? So a thing that everyone needs to understand, I think that, or maybe this is helpful for me to think about is anytime we eat anything, our bodies have a bias towards worrying that this food could be dangerous, right? Because your body has to assume anytime anything goes into your stomach that it could have bad bacteria, it could have something wrong, right? So it's always in alert mode. And so what you're doing by feeding the, um, the body these foods in a safe form at a, you know, this age where the baby's just starting to eat the food is you're actually providing evidence, you know, kind of to the body that this is a safe food. And it starts to build up certain kinds of immune cells, which we call tolerizing cells. So for all of us, we have sort of a reactive part of our immune system, right, that tells our body to go into attack mode. And then we also have a tolerizing part of our immune system that tells our body to like keep it cool. And whenever we have a cold, your body has to do that balance, any kind of virus, anything, right? Because what your body has to do is say, okay, I wanna fight off the bacteria, but I don't wanna raise my own body temperature so much that I'm gonna hurt me, right? So what happens is that you always have this balance. And so by, you know, the training wheels are really to kind of give evidence and data in some sense to this tolerizing immune system. And then it learns to not, basically to not call the, you know, the nuts or the eggs a threat. And that's sort of how it works. And there's very specific immune cells that are trained in this and everything, but I don't think that detail is necessarily relevant. The next part of that, I guess, I'm wondering about is if you could tell me a bit more around the studies that looked into this and, and what makes you so sure that sure. feeding these allergens early on can prevent a baby mm -hmm. from developing food allergies later? Well, whenever we want to ask a question like this, right, will X work to do Y? The best way to do a study like that is you take two groups of people that are very similar to each other. And in one group of people, you do what's called the intervention and the other group of people you know, you do a control, you do nothing. And so that's what they did when they wanted to ask the question, will feeding peanuts early prevent peanut allergy? They took 800 babies or, you know, they took several hundred babies and they fed them peanuts early and they took matched control. So very similar babies, but those other, the other half of the babies just continued avoidance. And what they found over time was an 80% reduction in the rate of peanut allergy in the babies who are being fed peanut. And then you see, and this, this kind of study was repeated over and over. So another thing you look for when you're looking at clinical studies is how was the same finding repeated? Right. And so there, that first study was done in the UK. And then there was another study done, actually a second in the UK, then one in Canada. It's been repeated in Australia. And then the same thing happened with egg. And so, again, you use these two groups of babies. You do, you know, feed half eggs and half not. And so what I will point out about that, though, is, you know, they found an 80 percent reduction overall. And there's two big points I want to I want you to know about this. Number one is that if babies kept up with the protocol, meaning if they were really good, and I guess it's not the baby's fault, so it's the mom or dad's fault, right, the parents, if the parents were really good about making sure the baby ate enough peanut every single week, there was a 97% reduction in the risk of peanut allergy. And if they did like some amount of exposure, you know, it was more like 60. And so if you average across all those kids, 80%, right? The, so, so the first point I wanna make is it's the, sticking to the repeated exposure every single week is really important. 
The second thing that's important about that is even with 97%, that's not 100, right? So you're going to have some children who, despite doing this, will still develop the allergy. And their immune system for, and again, we can talk about all of that, which is kind of where the book goes, is their immune system is in a place where it's just so trigger happy and they end up developing the peanut allergy anyway. But, you know, 97% is really, really good, or even 80% risk reduction is really huge. And I know you can speak to this, right? Like you have allergies yourself and would you take an 80% chance that you could not? I'm sure you would, right? Oh yeah, and you know one of the reasons I'm doing this uh, yeah. early allergen introduction process with my daughter is because I don't want her to have to grow up with the food allergy that mm -hmm. I've had, and and the hassle that that brings. Um, mm -hmm. And I want to say how how amazed and like impressed I am actually. I think for so many families where an older child has a food allergy, it's just so scary. And I I know you know I mean you go through it personally, but as a parent watching your child anaphylax, like that fear is so strong. And I just wanna say that I was really impressed when you told me, when you first reached out and you know, said you were thinking about this because I would, I would be terrified if I were you. And I know you've had some fears with this, but it's like, it's really impressive that you've, you know, you found a way to, you know, kind of go with it. So I'm, I'm, I'm very, I wanna say proud because it's not my, not my accomplishment, I'm impressed. Well, thank you. and. There's a lot I have to say about how it's been going. Um, because, I mean, I have lived in a nut-free household uh, for, for my own safety. So bringing your box of Little Mixins uh, protein sachets of, I mean, you've got a variety of tree nuts in there. Um, yeah. I, I felt uncomfortable just having them in the house. Mm -hmm. And now the idea that I'm going to be feeding them to my daughter every single week. Uh, I mean, that was daunting, but I don't want to talk about me because I want to interview Fair you. Enough. I'm doing a video about my experience. I just wanted to make sure I told you that because it is, I know it's hard. And, and so I wanted to give Thank you kudos you. for that. One of my questions is, what's the reason you, you haven't created a powder that you could mix with a bottle of milk? Because for me, uh, as someone with an allergy to tree nuts, certain tree nuts, I, I find the, the process quite messy because I open the sachet, I mix it. Actually, my husband has to do the ones that I'm allergic to. Sure. Um, but if, if I could mix it into a bottle, and I know that uh, one of the other companies that offers yeah. early allergen introduction food products, they do a, a bottle mix. But I wondered why Little Mixins doesn't. So that's a good question. So actually, there's another company that does a bottle mix, and one of their bottle mix is only for their egg peanut milk product. And then once you add in all the nuts, they no longer recommend you mix it into milk. Um, the other company, there's another company that mixes a whole bunch of allergens, actually 16 allergens, and they actually, I, th I think they changed their product eventually to be allowed to be mixed into milk. The real limiting factor is that it's actually food, right? So the more you the the more you process it, right, um, the more you can potentially put it into a bottle. So I will say that little mixins you can take the packets and mix them into into breast milk um, or formula um, in a bottle. What you will get is some some amount of settling because it is a real protein, right? So it won't perfectly suspend or or, or dissolve, I should say, into the milk. And the other reason we really don't want people to mix it into the bottle is because if you think about a bottle of milk, like a four ounce bottle of milk, there's not very much protein in that. 
And what happens when you eat a really heavy protein meal is you eat less. But we don't want children eating less of their formula or breast milk because that's where 100% of their nutrients are coming from. And you will, over time, start to affect how much milk they're drinking. But that's a bad outcome, actually, right? So we didn't really want that. And we wanted parents, and the AAP says to mix this into food because they, too, do not want you to touch how much milk the baby is drinking. So that was the big first reason. But the other limiting factor is if you look at the total protein content of some of the other products, it's the one that you can continue to mix into milk is under one gram of protein. But the only thing that's ever been studied is what happens when a baby eats two grams of protein per sitting. So, you know, these are constraints, right? And I think, but I think it kind of comes back to early allergen introduction was really meant as a part of complementary feeding. It's really meant to be part of the baby's diet, like their food side of their diet, but not their, you know, you're really just supposed to leave breastfeeding or formula alone. Um, it's kind of, sacred in that way, right? We really, really want baby to eat and get their in their hydration and everything else, right? We just really don't want to affect um, how that goes. So that's really the reason is we tell people we're nervous that that would, if the baby drinks even two or three ounces less in a day, but now they're getting less fluids, they're getting less nutrients. Got it. Your Little Mixins seven day offering that I'm reviewing, um, you've got seven of mm -hmm. the top allergens. You haven't included three of the biggies, dairy, shellfish, and wheat. How come? So um, dairy, because babies, so 80% of children by uh, age six months are intervening or introducing some amount of formula. So they're actually already getting dairy exposure. So then I'm, then we'd be making you pay extra for something you're already feeding your baby. So what's the, what's the sense in that? Um, and so that's the reason we don't do uh, milk. Wheat we found is also relatively simple or it's in a lot of baby cereals and other foods babies are eating. It's the same thing, right? We're trying not to duplicate things that parents are already paying for and already buying. Um, so that's the big one. Shellfish is an interesting one where it's complicated because shellfish, when you really think about it, it's actually like saying tree nut. But shellfish is actually a whole number of allergies, right? You'd actually have to eat the shrimp and the salmon and the cod, the cod and the, you know, the white fish, all the different fishes and stuff. And there's just sort of a bit of a diminishing return there. Like they're rarer and rarer. So we went with the ones that were kind of the most probabilistic. The last thing I'll say about that is there was a really good study that Karina Venter did um, out of, uh, I believe she's the lead author on this, um, that showed that just by virtue of diversifying the baby's diet, it protects, protects against more and more allergies. So, um, there's a, there's a big clinical study going on in the United States right now, a randomized control trial. And even in that study, they're not looking at shellfish. And so I just think there's a huge challenge for parents. Like if you wanna do two grams of protein in a day, you run out of days in the week and you have to do it every week. So then you know, the baby only eats so many times and a lot of people are going to daycare. So what are you supposed to do, right? You kind of have to make these not perfect, um, Nothing, no solution is really perfect, you know, in that sense. And on the frequency of exposure, so the box says use one packet daily. The website says two to three times a week. What is the minimum frequency to achieve maximum benefit in your view? So according to the clinical studies, and the study was called the EAT study done out of the UK, and they found that two grams of every protein um, a week was kind of the floor of what you wanted to do. And so you want to get every packet in. 
So when a baby does only one protein, because I think that's the challenge is that some people only want to do peanut, right? And then you actually want them to eat a little bit more of it because that's the only allergen exposure they're getting. Whereas when you do the box every day, you're still eating an allergen, right? So again, kind of going back to that diet diversity thing, they do have this sort of like cross behavior that just by pushing your body to think about soy, it becomes a little bit more tolerant of, you know, walnut. Um, you know what I mean? So there's, but if you're only doing peanut, then that's the only allergen that you're eating. You, you need to do a little bit more of it. And that's kind of where the clinical studies have ended up. Um, so the LEAP study looked only at peanut, the EAT study did everything. So with the box, I've got seven packets to use in a week. So where the website mm -hmm. says you can just use it two to three times a week, is that saying I can use any of my seven packets? No, no, no. So it's talking about if you use, if you just use the peanut, you know, like if you're only using the peanut, you're not using the box. So um, that, and that's, again, that's sort of, if you're only using peanut and it gets, it does get a little confusing. I agree with you, but the data is a little bit confusing because when there's multiple, there's been different studies when the peanut study, right, looked at only peanut and they didn't think about any other allergen and they did two times a week, right? And the egg study that was only egg two times a week. But then the one study that looked at what happens if we try and eat seven, eight, 10 different kinds of foods, they could only do it once a day. Or, or sorry, once a week, right? One per day. And so that's really where these protocols come from is that's the best data we have is exactly what worked in a big clinical study. And what was the protective effect of that study where they ate a different one every day? If they ate two grams of the protein in a week, so, so by eating one packet a day, you know, and doing it every week, then you got the protective effect, same, same sort of overall um, Oh, across the different allergens, I believe it was like 60% reduction in food allergy. Um, and you get differential, you get differential effect. The big challenge in the EAT study is they weren't giving people products. So the adherence was really, really bad. And so they found good data. They got found good results when people adhered to it. But if you ask someone to, you know, uh, make even the egg, because you're supposed to boil it first and then feed it to the baby. And like, you do that every week and people just quit. It was really good, and then it, but it was hard to get people to keep up with it. So the minimum frequency to achieve maximum benefit is I've, I've got to do a sachet a day. Just keep a going. A sachet a day, yep. Until, she, yeah. uh, until she's one, and then after then, after one, I've got to try and incorporate yeah. real foods. Real but foods. Every single day? No, we don't know. Honestly, we don't know. Cause like the studies can only tell you what the study studied. Right. And so we just know that continuing frequency, the hope is that by not having the allergy, she'll just make this part of her diet, you know, that she'll be eating pestos and she'll be eating, you know, like I said, nut butters or, or, uh, you know, like a banana bread with walnuts in it or things like that. Like she'll just be eating it and then it'll be fine. You know, it's not, I think you really, you really want to be, I can't think of a better word than militant. You know, you want to be rigorous. That's the word I was looking for. Rigorous really in that six to 10 month time frame. Okay, let's talk about your new book now. Okay. <laughs> the Baby and the Biome. Uh, so in it, you tell the story of your firstborn son Leo's experiences with asthma, multiple food allergies you mentioned, eczema, and you combine it with research and your suggestions around the importance of protecting the health of our children's microbiomes. Can you give us the, the overview of how a baby's risk of developing allergies, asthma, eczema, and even IBS can be linked to this ecosystem within us that we call the microbiome? 
Yeah, totally. Okay. So the first thing we need to, the first thing we need to talk about or agree on is asthma, eczema, food allergies. These are all called allergic diseases, right? And in, and in fact, IBS is now thought to be really an, an allergy too. So allergic diseases are all actually in some ways, it's all the same disease. And it's not exactly true, but if you think about it, like it's not perfectly correct, but it's really, um, they are really, really overlapping, right? You develop one, you develop others. And it's like the same fundamental system kind of exhibiting in different body systems. So sometimes it's hurting your gut, sometimes it's hurting your skin, sometimes it's hurting your lungs, that kind of thing, right? So it helps when you think of them like, oh, they're all actually kind of the same disease, right? And then, um, so how is, what's the, what's the role of the microbiome? Well, the microbiome, um, it covers every bit of us. And the big piece that you need to understand that it covers is what's called your barriers. Okay, so your skin, that one's easy for everyone to imagine. Your skin is a barrier to the outside world. But I think one that actually really like screws with people is that your gut is actually a barrier to the outside world. The entire tube of your GI system is actually outside of you, right? Um, if you really think about it, it's, you know, once you cross the GI system. So we have microbes lining every bit of our, our barrier, our skin, our gut, our lungs. And they are part of that barrier, right? So, I mean, you're, I mean, you're in your house. So imagine thinking about the, both the shingles or, you know, the, the siding or anything else on your house and the walls, they're both part of the protection. So if I rip off the siding or shingles off your house or stucco or whatever it is on the outside, and I replace it with, uh, you know, foam, you're going to get leaks in your house, right? And then if you started getting mold inside your walls, you wouldn't be confused by that. You'd say, well, yeah, it's because somebody screwed with my barrier, you know, my, my wall. And that's basically what's happening to our barriers is that by damaging and, and messing with our microbiome, we've actually made ourselves, our own immune system, our barriers weaker. And our barriers are really the first and biggest part of our immune system. So that's really how this kind of whole cascade happens. But um, I think that's a really critical part of where this all goes. Mm -hmm. And in the book, you talk about what you see as the major players in microbiome dysfunction. You've got mm -hmm. uh, antibiotics, baby care, diet and environment. What are some of the biggest mistakes you think we've been making in those areas? I think the one that's by far the best documented, right, is just this like massive overuse of antibiotics. We really didn't, we really just for decades thought there was no downside. And, and you saw it in the, you know, the neosporins and the antibacterial soaps and the, the cleaning products and, you know, and the Purells that were constantly scrubbing all over everything. And we just thought, great, great. We're just getting rid of these microbes, but we were also killing off all the good microbes. And I know that one has been by far the best documented, but I don't think so many parents really think about all the ways in which antibiotics get into your life, you know? And like I was saying, it's, it's in, it's in meat, it's in so many of our cleaning products and other things. Um, but in the United States in particular, um, the, we have a massive overuse of antibiotics for children's illnesses. And that's, that's one of the biggest culprits during this very formative stage of a child's life. We're so quick to prescribe antibiotics for things that are actually viral. And that one change, you know, that one change will cut out, sorry, 75% of antibiotic use 
you know, and that was that was a finding I think that we talk about in the book is um, they made in Sweden just by being very conscious of when they were using antibiotics, 75% reduction in their use, right? So that means three out of four times we use antibiotics in our country. It's like for no good reason. Um, and in fact, bad for us. <laughs> There's a part of the book where you, um, it's when you're talking about genetics, the how, how some of the risk for ending up with a food allergy does lie in a child's genes. But you sure. say, uh, the quote is, the real risk of developing food allergies rests in the food children eat, the medicines they take, the pathogens and environmental factors they face and more. Do you expect to get pushback from the medical community um, for making that statement? And if yes, what would your response be? I don't, I mean, I guess it depends on how someone interprets that statement, right? Because I'm not saying genetics are 0%. I'm saying that the higher order bit is everything else. And I think that's actually pretty well accepted. I mean, nothing that, I'm not an allergist or an immunologist, right? And everything I'm saying in this book is actually just a translation of published literature. Um, I think that, so I don't believe that there's actually will be a lot of pushback to that. Of course, we'll see, right? And there's always Twitter. So there's pushback to anything on Twitter. Like I could be like, oh, I love eggs and people push back to that. So, <laughs> um, but um, no, I mean, um, but to be serious, I think that that's actually pretty well accepted. And if you just think about it, it makes fundamental sense. You cannot have a disease go from zero to 100 in one generation and call that genetic. Right. I'm not again, not saying no part of it is genetic. I'm saying that most of that effect has to be coming from something else because people's genes didn't change that much in a single generation. Tell us about some of the common baby care practices um, that, that you argue in the book can cause more harm than good for infant immune systems. Yeah. And I, I was I was curious, actually, as you read the book, um, one of the things I talk about right in there a fair amount is that at the my sister and I had babies at about the same time, but she was living in London at the time. And the practices in the UK are so different. And her baby nurse and everything else were telling her to do totally different things than I was being told to do. And and so I was curious kind of what your thoughts were on that kind of being from both cultures as uh, you know, as well then. Um, but the most the biggest thing that we do too much of in the United States is we overbathe our children. And when their skin, when they're very young and their skin is very fragile, um, you're basically just stripping that skin constantly of all of its protective oils, of its good, healthy bacteria. And um, the stuff that grows back fastest after you've kind of bleached a surface is always the bad stuff. It's never the good stuff, right? And so, um, so we actually like promote growth of like yeasts and other things, you know, that are not helpful on our microbiome by overbathing. And I think that's one of the worst, right? And I, the other bad one really is um, we use really, I don't want to say toxic, that's not quite the right word, but um, unnecessarily harsh chemicals, specifically around the uh, diaper area. And a lot of our microbiome, right, rests in our lower gut and, you know, kind of the colon. And, and so that you're really screwing with your GI system when you over, you know, you, you accidentally basically push chemicals up through their GI tract by overcleaning with harsh chemicals the, uh, the diaper area. You talk about nurturing your baby's biome during pregnancy too in the book. And I wondered if you were pregnant now for the first time, what steps would you take uh, to help protect your child from developing an allergy in the future? Yeah, I would say that um, 
the, the data here isn't great, right? But what we can say is, you know, if the mom's having issues, that's all not never a good sign. Um, and, but I do think in general, the one thing that's kind of shows up all the time is the chemical exposure. So since learning all the stuff, like even our whole household has gone way like lower chemicals in, you know, in terms of the products we use, the paints, everything. And I think that's a huge step that people can take. Like there's just so much stuff that we do without thinking and there's just no need for it. Like, it's not like we're cleaner for having more harsher chemicals, you know, on our, on our sheets and things. So why? Um, and yeah, so that, I think that's a big, that's a big shift. And that's a big shift. Uh, it's a great, you know, uh, pregnancy gift. You find out someone's pregnant and you're like, here, make sure you're using soap instead of detergent. <laughs> yeah, there are so many suggestions you make in the book. You know, it's interesting because there's one part where you say, quote, the habits parents put in place and the choices they make during their child's first six months can either foster strong barriers and a healthy immune system or set off a chain reaction of allergic responses that takes years to control. And I mean, you're going through that, the years of controlling it with your firstborn. If a parent reads that and they already have a child with allergies, they might think, oh wow, so is, is this all my fault? And if they thought that, what would yeah. you want them to know? I mean, I hope the takeaway from the book, you know, I think that's, that's always um, a risk. People will feel they're being accused, right? But how could you be, how could it be your fault if you didn't even know, right? And you're just trying to do right by your kid. I mean, I think that's all, what all of us are doing is trying to do right by our kids. No one's overbathing their kid for like their own well-being, right? They're doing because they think that's right for their kid or whatever. And so, I mean, I don't, I, what I mean by that chain reaction is very unfortunately is when a kid develops eczema um, by stripping their skin barrier, they scratch it and that actually causes food allergy. And then when you cause food allergy or, you, you know, you allow, like you increase the odds of food allergy, you can increase the odds of asthma, right? So that's how this like, it snowballs. And it is, it's horrible. Once you get on this, like, yeah, you're, you're like, you're, you're flying down a, the worst mountain ever, you know, and there's like, you feel like there's no way to stop it. Um, and so I think the point of that was really, if you're at a place where you can make choices before, great. You know, let's, knowledge is power. And even if you're at a place where it's already happened, what we found in our household is that by still making those same choices, we were able to pull back from the brink. We were able to reduce the number of flares, reduce a lot of the symptoms he's having, and actually to a large extent heal a lot of the stuff. So I think that you know, it's it's this it's always the same stuff that same behaviors that both prevent disease and treat it. Whether that's you know, you know, the same not drinking right before bed will prevent insomnia and help treat it, right, or whatever. It's like it's always kind of the same good behaviors that are good for you either side. And there's a real need for you know an understanding of information and, and spreading awareness. I I know that the point you made there about the skin barrier and how that plays into the development of food allergies. Um, my allergist was talking to me about that when I was pregnant. I got in touch with her and I wanted to talk about ways of potentially preventing my baby from having allergies. And you know, to me, some of the things that you also mentioned in the book, it was important to me to keep my baby's vernix on when she was born and um, only bathe her once a week, starting at a later date. And I feel like these, these areas of research aren't necessarily very well known about. No. And I don't feel that early allergen introduction is widely known about either. Do you see that landscape starting to change now? And I imagine that's part of your goal with the book. 
Yeah, actually, I do see it starting to change. I do think there's a lot more work we can do. And really, that was the genesis of the book, right? It was this the, the true story is I was talking to my friend Betsy on the phone. And I was complaining. I was like, why doesn't anyone know this? Why doesn't anyone know about this? And she's like, well, then why don't you do something about it? Why don't you fix it? Like, sit down and start writing, you know, and here we are. Right? So um, I do think that you have to start having the conversation because they, you know, hopefully it starts somewhere, but and hopefully a lot of these things are easy. I don't, I don't, um, hopefully none of it's like controversial, right? In the sense of like, we're not asking people to make giant shifts in their lives, like, you have to move states or something. Hopefully, you know, leaving the Vernix on for a week and a half or two weeks is not a big ask of people. Before I let you go, I really want to touch on probiotics. Um, okay. There's an interesting part of the book where you talk about this um, and the problem with taking like a general mix of strains uh, because there are certain strains that have some scientific backing and, and they could be most mm -hmm. helpful. I know when I was pregnant with my baby, there were specific probiotic strains that were on my radar because, mm -hmm. because they had potential for beneficial effects in utero and after birth with research behind them. Tell us about, about your problem with people taking just general mixes of strains. Yeah. So interestingly, just today or yesterday, the United States Preventative Service Task Force released a big, a big position or paper basically saying like vitamins are useless, right? And they, they often do terrible things and they're, and you know, but I, I feel like that's a lot like probiotics. If you're just taking vitamin, right? That, that's probably not useful. But if you have a specific condition for which a specific vitamin or supplement could be useful, then it makes sense. But if you're just taking a random daily vitamin and no matter what your condition is, of course it's not gonna help and it's gonna waste money, right? So that study was both useful or that paper was both useful and also a bit annoying because it I feel like a lot of people took away the conclusion like definitely never take a vitamin, right? But obviously like prenatal vitamins are good for that specific time frame and that specific use. So probiotics are exactly the same. Right, which is if there's a some you can prove that certain bacteria strains help for certain conditions, either prevention or treatment. Great. And you have that, use it. But if you're just gonna take a probiotic, no, no matter what's wrong with you, whether your skin's itchy or your, you know, your hair isn't shiny or whatever, then yeah, you're not gonna get any benefit. You're just gonna end up wasting money. And 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 just like with the vitamins, you might end up doing harm if you're taking a whole lot of bacteria you don't need, you know? So Probiotics and vitamins are really similar in that way. Like they can be useful, but you have to think about what's in it. What is the goal? What is it that you're trying to treat or um, prevent? And, um, you know, has it been proven? And are you getting enough of it in there? Uh, all that stuff. And just briefly, what were the specific probiotics that you mentioned in the book, the strains that are most heavily linked to helping with eczema or prevention of allergies? So there was one particular one, so uh, Lactobacillus rhamnosus and B. infantis, those have actually decent data on them. So Lactobacillus rhamnosus, when taken in the specific protocol, when taken in the last trimester of pregnancy and through breastfeeding, has been shown across 10 randomized studies to cut the risk of eczema by about 50%, right? But if they did a study, if the baby just took it for, you know, ages three months old to six months old, then you get no benefit, right? So it's very specific. and um, for that particular use case, right? And then there's some other B. infantis and, and a lot of the lactobacillus strains that have been proven. Now, my last caveat on that is to date, most of the probiotics we have on the market are just things that we could easily make and easily grow. So there are a lot of companies trying to like 
find new medicines, if you will, by finding bacteria, find exactly what they're useful for. And I think that this, you know, we could see a lot of drugs become probiotics in the future, potentially, but it's going to take that work. I mean, it has been wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much. I recommend that everybody has a look at this book, whether they intend to be a parent or not. Um, where can people find you on social media and follow your work? So most of um, most of the work is all published through our little mixins. It's like L I L M I X I N S on you know Facebook, on Instagram, on on all the things, and um, LinkedIn, whatever. And so that's the best way to find us. Brilliant. Thank you so much, and thanks everybody for watching and joining us this time. Bye bye.